Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from our listeners. This week, I want to thank Stephen for becoming a $20 a month supporter on Patreon. Your support means the world. Stephen wrote, I've really been enjoying your podcast, and I'm happy to contribute. I've been making my way through the bonus episodes, and I have to say, the Truth or Dare episode lived up to the hype. It was so fun to listen to. And that final call between you and the guy who applied at your restaurant was fascinating. You can hear that fascinating phone call and the entire back catalog of bonus episodes when you support the show on Patreon. There are links in the show notes, or visit thebittersweetlife.net and click the donation button. Thank you so much. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And lately, we've all, because of the pandemic, been spending a lot of time in the exact same place, (laughs) mainly very close to our own homes. If not inside our own homes. Right, (laughs) exactly, which has gotten us talking a bit about the novelty of traveling to new places when this is over. But lately, I've been uh, talking a lot with my dad. We, Both of us being vaccinated, we've had the opportunity to actually go out for breakfast a couple times together. So nice. I know. And, and in taking walks after breakfast, often end up talking about our time traveling in Vietnam, which is something, as you know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that in my 20s, me and my father used to travel to Vietnam pretty regularly. We'd go about twice a year together, February and August usually. I think I went at least seven times by my count with him. And so it's gotten me thinking a lot about the value of revisiting places versus going to new places every single time you travel. And I think when I was a younger person, I used to think that I had a a little bit of a limit, limited imagination when it came to travel, where anytime I did have the opportunity to travel, I almost always went somewhere I'd been before. So whether that was internationally with to Vietnam or if it was just to South Carolina to see my grandmother again, I was always returning to the same places. And I used to think of that as a negative. But today, I thought we could explore that as a positive. How about you, Tiffany? Are you a revisitor of the same places over and over again? Not really. I mean, I, the only place that I can consider that to be the case is... Uh, is Italy before I moved here. I did come back again and again and again and again and again to Italy, probably not seven times. But I, when I did come, you know, I would come for like as long as possible, a month or a month and a half back when I was on summer break from college and stuff. But I did, you know, I was constantly drawn back to Italy for obvious reasons. We all know that, you know, I was called to eventually move to Italy. Mm-hmm. But that's the really the only place. I have been to France probably, I don't know, five times, five, six times. Paris about five, six times. So that was, is maybe the other case. But these days... I mean, Katie, it's so hard to say. Like, I feel like I haven't traveled in <laughs> in 20 years. Like, I <laughs> yeah. really, because even before the pandemic, I was traveling so much less than I had been before I had my child and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's really even hard to say. But there were definitely two or three years in there where it was like, I want to, you know, just 
check off as many countries as I can. I want to like see as many countries as I can. And and looking back, I am glad I did that because I haven't been to a new country in a long time, a completely new country. But I do think that there is a certain level of intimacy that you get with a place, familiarity, understanding that, you know, you cannot get in a one-off trip. And so those return trips, I mean, if you can't, if you don't have the opportunity to move to that place, return trips are a great way to really delve in. And I think that it is very valuable, but it's a hard call, you know, because we only have one life, you know, and we have limited travel time. So it's, I can understand people saying, well, I want to see someplace new, but I do think you're right. There is so much value in returning. Well, yeah. And I think what I was thinking of in particular is it's also because, you know, in your 20s, at least for me, that was a very formative travel period of time. And because I spent much of that time revisiting the same place that sometimes now I find when I just go to a place for just a couple days, some new place for just a couple days, or I go even for a week, that sometimes it feels like I don't know, not as interesting in some way. I mean, I guess the way to describe it would be, so seven times to Vietnam. And every time we went, we would revisit the same places. And I don't know if you were doing that when you went to Italy, but we would go oftentimes to Hanoi, and then we'd go to the center of the country to Hue and Hoi An and Da Nang. And then we'd end by being down in Saigon in the south. And in each of those places, we'd had, over time, had met local people in each of those places. So we would arrive and we would reunite with those people. So then after going so many times, we eventually knew a whole network of kids who sold postcards in the streets to tourists in Saigon. We knew Mr. Lewin and his whole group of friends, all who were cyclo drivers. We knew a bunch of people who worked in the government, like Quinn and Chan. I knew a girl named Hat and a guy named Quinn, both of who worked at the Saigon Saigon Bar, which was my favorite bar in town. I ended up going bowling with Ha once, and I went on a late night date with Quinn once. You talk about that in one of our epi- earlier episodes, actually. Yeah. Rom- episode of romance. Yeah, that late night date. That was a news to my dad, by the way, um, <laughs> that I had gone on that date. I didn't happen to mention that when we were traveling. Um, we... Also knew uh, there's Catholicism is a part of culture in Vietnam, even though that might not be a thing that you immediately think of. And we became really good friends with Sister Bong, who was a woman who worked in Hue, um, mostly with the poor, providing medical care. And she kind of very strangely reminded me of my grandmother, like my dad's mom. And I always thought it was kind of funny that my dad and Sister Bong became such good friends because I didn't know if he ever recognized that she had qualities that his own mother had, (laughs) particularly in the way her mouth moved. She kind of resembled my grandmother. And then like up in Hanoi, we got to know this woman named Twee, who was originally just a tour guide we met, but we became such good family friends with her that eventually we ended up going to her wedding one time when we were there. My dad also met this girl named Huynh who... He met, I guess, she was studying English and she ran up to him because she was misunderstanding something that was happening in the lesson she was studying. And she was looking for a native speaker and ran up to him asking a question about one of her lessons. And strangely, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Huynh emailed me and I told her, oh, I'm so, I hope you guys are okay with this pandemic because, you know, she lived 
in a very tight quarter. She was a rather poor young woman. And so she lived like amongst tons and tons of people. And so I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, is it just going to run rampant through their area? And she, she wrote me back and just, oh, you know, don't worry about us. We'll be fine. We know how to use masks. You, you Americans don't so much. <laughs> it's this, um, it just was this very rich tapestry of understanding of what life was like there, all the different layers but it also was not relaxing at all. And and that's not to say that we didn't do touristy things. Like we went to the Coochie Tunnels and there was a resort in Da Nang called the Furama, which is just an amazing place that we would take a couple days off in sometimes. But it was a lot of socializing and it was a lot of meetings. And it was a lot of class dynamics, honestly, because so many people we knew were poor and struggling. But it felt a lot more like I understood what real life was than I understand it in, say, Spain, where I've spent like a couple weeks driving along the coast and stopping, you know, in great spots, which I have fond memories of, but I don't feel like I necessarily understand what's happening there. Do you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. Yeah. A quick aside to help you shop for summer clothes of the best quality, you must check out Fairty. They're a family-run clothing company that prioritizes sustainable fibers and non-toxic dyes, and they even ship their clothes in an environmentally friendly way. I own three of their shirts, and I absolutely love them. In fact, Tiffany, I'm wearing one right now. They are so soft and comfortable, and they are the perfect blend of casual and classic. You know when you're searching for that ideal summer outfit, that shirt, that dress that feels like you've had them for years, maybe a gorgeous print that fits so perfectly and feels almost too good to be vintage, but still looks like it might be? Well, that's Fairty. And they're so confident in the quality of their stuff, they have a lifetime guarantee of quality. They'll replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. And to top it all off, Fairty is giving Bittersweet Life listeners 20% off. 20%. So shop now for new summer clothes. Head to fairdbrand.com and enter the promo code bittersweet at checkout for 20% off your order. Now, back to the show. I've always wondered, what kind of work were you doing in Vietnam? I know it has to do with charity work, but like specifically, like what Katie Sewell were you doing <laughs> oh, me. while you were there? All those times, I'm just curious. I mean, that would be really pretty hard to boil down. I mean, because the stuff that my father was involved in really was varied based on where we were in the country. And what I was doing was, you know, just sort of the social color of the official business, if you know what I mean. So I did sit through a lot of really long meetings with government officials or even with Sister Bong. We always used to joke that, you know, if you were any in any kind of a rush and you showed up to meet with somebody, like let's just say hypothetically, showed up to meet with Sister Bong and a couple of the other sisters about whatever it was they needed. If you showed up and they led you into a room with water bottles and oranges and Kleenex on the table, you were not getting out of there anytime soon. Uh-oh. Which was basically like their basic hospitality. Water and oranges and Kleenex to used as napkins and you just knew that you were in for like an epically long meeting like how long <laughs> so, like three hours long i mean at least a couple hours all the niceties but then also you got to talk about business and 
I think a lot of my role was to sort of be the family member that came along that was in love with the country that was willing to joke around you know like one time we went to see sister bong and the sisters were putting on some sort of like homemade carnival to try to raise money and there were a whole bunch of kids there at different booths that they had created and one of the booths was that you were supposed to try to walk across a, a tightrope while throwing a dart at a target. And Sounds hard. Of course they wanted me to do that. <laughs> you know? So I'm, you know, I'm just there to sort of try anything or, you know, to hang out with these postcard sellers and mm. just hang out with them, get to know them, go roller skating with them, meet their families. Vietnam is so uh, about family and I think I mentioned to you before that my father just found that it was much easier to uh, be in these social situations if he had a daughter w with him. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you got to be a little bit suspicious of, I would think, of a foreigner coming in and offering help of any kind, you know. So it takes away any assumptions of like, oh, maybe this is a, a single man who is here on some sort of sex tourism or something or, you know, any of those kind of suspicions were a bit alleviated by traveling with your child. But mm -hmm. that said, I was talking to him just actually the other day because, of course, doing charitable things in a foreign country is tricky. Like, it's, it's and it, oh my gosh, I mean, how many people have blundered into making some kind of a mistake in trying to help? I imagine. I mean, I'm sure it's rampant. And so, I mean, I was asking my dad, actually, just the other day, I was like, how... Did you make sure that what you were working on was a good thing and not something that was going to, um, you know, either be exploited or was like the wrong thing to be involved in mm -hmm. or that you were helping the wrong people? And he said that, number one, I always traveled with a native not only a na native speaker, but somebody who had grown up there. He al always traveled with this man named Bin who did live in Washington state, but had moved here after the Vietnam War. And his whole family was still there. And so a person who understands the layers of the culture that's going on. And he also said that you have to go with the idea of finding out what the needs are from the local people. And that takes time because you have to get to know the locals. And not only do you have to get to know the locals, you have to get to know who's trustworthy amongst the locals, which takes time yeah even that's its own challenge yeah to suss it out and you have to start to learn the dynamics by asking them why things are the way they are if there's a, an existing problem why does that problem exist like that and of course we as white westerners might assume that oh poverty came about because of this and it could be something totally different and then he just said that he never uh initiated a program of his own he always tried to find people who were already working to solve the problem and support them basically that's smart yeah i mean he basically said that don't do anything to help in a foreign country without some advice from the locals and finding people that you can trust of course is so important unless of course there is a company that's already doing what it is that you believe in and you trust them True. Totally makes sense. sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for anybody who actually is going to travel and is interested in traveling in the philanthropic way, he also said that you should make a plan ahead of time about if you want to give money away, decide what you're going to do ahead of time. How much money are you going to give away? Make a plan. Don't just go willy nilly. <laughs>
And he also said, uh, you know, that one thing to keep in mind, too, in places like, like when we were going to Vietnam, there was not any, there wasn't any kind of uh, ambulance system. Hmm. They had ambulances, but they would only basically run a person from one medical place to another. There was no 911. There's no calling for help in that way. And so another thing he just happened to mention when we were talking about this, for goodness sake, when you visit certain places, everybody should be considering their personal safety. You just never know what clinics, if any, are around you. Right. And you were off on the backs of motorcycles, Katie. <laughs> I know. Or you're like crossing the street there is a general hazard for anyone who has ever been to Southeast Asia knows that crossing the street in Vietnam is treacherous and the main piece of advice I can give you, because it's like a river. It's a river of cars and bikes and people, and it never stops. And my piece of advice for you, if you are planning a visit to Vietnam, is once you start crossing the street, do not speed up, do not slow down. <laughs> Keep walking at the same moderate pace across the road, and the motorbikes will do their best to avoid you, which is why you do not want to dart or stop or run. They are treating you like you are a slowly moving stone across a river. And so just keep on keeping on. But yes, it is it is dangerous in that way. Sounds it. <laughs> so on a similar but different note, as you know, Katie, we've recently learned about a charity organization called Emergency. Yes. And they sent us an incredible story that I really want to share with everyone. So it's about someone called Samad. He was just a child working on his family's farm in Iraq when he stepped on a landmine and lost both of his legs. This is something that is so common in Vietnam, too. I imagine. I'm, yeah. All the time you see people wheeling themselves around in carts that have <sighs> just lost a limb in this way. That's so tragic. This charity organization called Emergency provided him with prosthetic legs and ongoing physiotherapy that he still really receives today. And what is even more interesting, I think, is that he was able to enroll in one of their professional development courses where he learned to, he learned to sew. And so he now runs a tailoring workshop that the charity emergency helped him open. Yeah, and they have a whole rehabilitation center in Iraq that helps empower people like Samad, give them the same opportunity to regain their independence, their livelihood, and in fact, every one of the people who work at that center, the center that manufactures these prosthetic limbs, are people who have lost their limbs themselves and have been treated by the center. That's my favorite part of this whole charity. I think that is so moving. Well, they I, I actually got on the phone with a couple of them not very long ago, Alex and David, and their value of not only rehabilitating people, but training the people to take over these clinics in, in another part of the world, in Afghanistan, they have a maternity clinic that provides gynecological services for women in Afghanistan. But they also train local women to run this. And it's just such an odd, unusual, wonderful way of doing charitable outreach. Yes, it really is. They are currently involved in medical projects in Afghanistan, Eritrea, Iraq, Italy, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Uganda, and Yemen. And they focus on providing free, high-quality, sustainable, long-term health care centered around building hospitals and empowering people by training locals to be staff like Samad. You mentioned Italy, Tiffany, and I asked them what they've been doing in Italy. 
And they said that one, they were one of the first responders when COVID broke out up in the north. Oh, really? And Italy has been having so much trouble with refugees trying to get there by boat and all the accidents that have been happening. And they've been helping with that as well, which is really interesting. It's great. Their charity solely relies on generous supporters. So if the work they're doing sounds interesting to you and you want to learn more or donate to support their incredible causes, just search for Emergency NGO. That's N for November. Emergency NGO and send them a donation today. Great. So Tiffany, would you ever consider taking such a trip, either a philanthropic trip or even just dedicating yourself to one small town and going and going and going and going until you know a good picture of not only the local community, but what's happening there, what it's like to live there? Um, I would have to be honest and say it depends what part of the world it is. <laughs> um, as far as if, you know, the second option, I would absolutely consider a philanthropic a philanthropic trip. Um, I've, I've thought about it many times. I've, um, I haven't gone so far as to actually plan such a trip, but I'd like to do that someday if the right opportunity comes along. Like you said, I don't want to get involved in something that is not going to actually be beneficial, (laughs) Yeah. but I absolutely would like to do that. And as far as returning to the same place over and over again, I can see myself doing it, but it has to be a place that I've fallen in love with. I would have a hard time if someone said, okay, this is like, you know, close your eyes, spin the globe. That's where you're going to go back every year. Greenland, go. <laughs> yeah, I might, I might not. But I mean, I haven't done something like you have, especially in a place so foreign to me, like Vietnam. But I do know what it is like to fall in love with a place and fall in love with the people there and just feel the call and the urge to go back again and again. Yeah, I think it's so interesting too. We've kind of touched on it in past shows, but that idea of when you're traveling, is it okay to skate along the surface and not really understand what you're seeing? Or for instance, for me living in Italy with you that year, never really understanding the language. So always missing that extra level of understanding. Or are you a person who at least in the case for Vietnam for me, is you just go so many times that you're trying to build, like you start to see the deeper and deeper, deeper layers, you know? And I think for you in Rome specifically, now that you've been there so long, is it starts out magical and then there's layers and layers and layers and you dig more and more into the real. And you can still see what's magical about the place, but you also know all the other stuff. It is a trade-off, this building of understanding, like of how much you know, Versus the general wonder of being in a new place. And and I always think that that contrast is interesting. It is. I think, I mean, obviously when you live in a place or when you travel there many times, you you get to know a complexity, a complex reality of that place. But I think if you love the place enough, you can sustain the wonder if you truly love it. It's never going to be the same as, you know, your first visit there. But I think you can have both. That said, I don't think it's wrong to skate along the surface in some places. Unless you travel to only two or three countries in your entire life, you can't go deep in every single place you go. There's just not enough time. I remember the very first time I traveled to a country that I didn't speak a word of the language. Like, I couldn't even, like, say good morning. And I think it was Slovenia. (laughs) And 
I kind of felt this moment of terror when I was arriving. I was like, I don't speak a word of the local language. What am I going to do? And of course, it was fine because I speak English and a lot of people can speak English. But you're not going to be able to speak every language of every country that you go to. And that's okay. You're not going to be able to learn 500 years of history of every single place that you go to. But, you know, every so often you'll happen upon a place that really touches you and you'll want to dig deeper and you'll want to go back. So I think it's just a matter of choosing which places are like that for you. Yeah, and I do think that even if you do skate along the surface, you still have a different understanding of a place. You know, even if you don't really understand what's going on in Slovenia while you're there, you don't understand the local dynamics or what have you, you at least when somebody mentions Slovenia or Slovenia pops up in the news, you at least have a picture in your head. And there's some value to that as well. And you've met people from there. Yeah. And you can say, oh, you know, I mean, I remember also going to Hungary. My first impressions of of that country and the people and the taxi driver who let me use his phone because my phone wasn't working and I couldn't find, I couldn't figure out the address. This is before smartphones to the hotel, trying to figure out and and letting me use his phone and me trying to pay him and him saying, what are you talking about? You don't have to pay me. And then him telling me that I looked like I was a Hungarian girl and I'd never been told in my life that I looked like a local from any country besides my own. Sorry, Claudia just came home from work very late. You know, I, I'll never forget that. And obviously, I don't know that many Hungarian people, but I remember that guy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I remember that interaction. And I can be like, you know, I met this Hungarian once, and he was so nice, and he was so friendly, and didn't try to take advantage of me, even though I was a tourist who couldn't speak a word of his language. Yeah, that's lovely. Well, if you have any thoughts, if you uh, are a person who returns to the same place over and over and over again, do let us know. Send us an email. You can always reach us at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach us at social media. Yes, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You could just search for The Bittersweet Life and you will find us. Yes. And for those of you who are living in the United States... Happy 4th of July. Oh, yes. Today is Independence Day observed. (laughs) So if you are listening to this on Monday, have a good day off. Yay. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Katie here. Before you go, I want to remind you that we would love to do a show about your unrealized dream fulfilled. What experience did you live that was amazing but unexpected? Record your story in a voice memo and send it to us at bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. If you're feeling shy, you can also write your story in an email as well. Write us or send a voice memo to bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. And if you forget that address, you can always visit our website, thebittersweetlife.net, where, if you love the show, you can also click on the donation button. Don't be shy. We want to hear your story. Talk to you next week. Bye.